you're listening to an episode of the Resilience Project podcast. I'm your host, Katie Bachmeyer. The ways that the system can be present with people is often determined by our mindset and approach. So what happens when we shift our focus away from fixing a person to recognizing and building resilience? Here's my conversation with Gretchen and Rachel on this topic. I'm Gretchen Beheimer. I'm the project director with Claremont County Family and Children First. And I'm Rachel Sorg. I'm the wraparound coordinator for Claremont County Family and Children First. Okay. Let's start off. Let's just talk about what resilience is. Let's go into that, the definition, what your knowledge and experience has been with it. My opinion is resilience is the ability, no matter what way that ability is or what strategy that is, is to get your needs met. Um, I think any way a person can make sure that their basic needs are met as a human being is, uh, is resilience. And I think it's very interesting when you look at it at that perspective, how much and to what great lengths a human being is willing to do to get some of those really basic needs met and how much of a drive that is for a human being. Mm-hmm. And so to me, when I think of resilience, that's what I think of. And I think of a lot of the same things. How do you, how do we as individuals take adverse events that happen in our life mm-hmm. and cope with them? You know, what, what ways do we use to cope with them? So we all have different ways. and. Um, how do we move forward from those adverse events? That's how we are resilient. Yeah. And the way that we move on is what you're saying, Rachel, is kind of by finding a way to meet our needs. Mm -hmm. What are some of those basic human needs? Oh my gosh. I, I was actually just talking to a youth pastor's wife last night about this. And we were having a conversation about what is the driving force behind just the stuff that we see every day, both in my work and her work, working in a church setting. And, you know, and I said to her, I said, you know, I really think the biggest need that people try to get met is that removal of isolation and that idea of human connection. And the more I do this work, the more I interact with families, the more I see people do just about anything to get that need met first and foremost over even sometimes food even sometimes shelter transportation clothing what they really crave first and foremost is to feel like they're connected to somebody Mm -hmm. or somebody's paying attention to them and i think that's the driving force behind everybody at the end of the day and like i said the more i do this work the more i realize in my experience that that is that is the need that everybody's striving to get met mm-hmm. yeah family after family mm-hmm. youth after youth what comes out in our wraparound meetings that connection mm-hmm. and how can we find that connection help them find yeah. that connection to that one person that organization that they're they're going to trust and be able to move forward with mm-hmm. yeah uh, there's so much in that because <laughs> there's different ways that um society or things that happen to you get in the way of human connection Mm -hmm. and the work of maybe a social worker or a therapist or wraparound services oftentimes doesn't deal so much with uh, that community connection, that relational connection. Well, I don't know if it specifically says in the job description, Mm -hmm. but what facilitators do is look at the strengths and needs of the families Mm -hmm. and how can we use those strengths to get those needs met. So helping them realize and then the team helping them realize their strengths because oftentimes you know they're not Mm -hmm. real 
great about saying what they're good at and mm. what they yeah. like to do, mm. but then helping them funnel those into something else. Yeah. And sometimes it's just, oh, I, you know, I didn't didn't know that, or right. oh, there's that, there's a resource, or absolutely. And I think the beauty about what we do in Ohio, because right now, for the most part, wraparound isn't that Medicaid billable. There's certain little pockets that you can, but that gives. Um, projects like what we have here in Claremont County, what I had up in my previous county in Sadusky County, some counties around us, is that gives us the flexibility to write what wraparound means for us. There's, there's a framework, there's a process that you follow, but um, what's been really great in the state of Ohio is that we've been able to tailor trainings and tailor the process and the model pushing that community piece. So it becomes so much less about helping people get hooked up to traditional services, but helping people find community. And that's really, I also train across the state in this work too. And that's one of the things that I push constantly, even when we're talking about safety planning and crisis planning, that it's not about getting a professional to your door. It's about getting somebody that you feel connected to on a personal level there to help you, to help manage the Mm -hmm. crisis and help to manage what safety means for your family. And so I think it is for Ohio right now, one of the greatest strengths we have going for us is that it allows us to be more community focused. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you both just said a lot there. So let's unpack <laughs> two of those things. One being, you know, that you're helping people see what their strengths are when they're coming to you. They're at a place where they don't know what those are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe they've never known, or maybe they've lost that mm-hmm. along the way. Um, there's a lot that has happened to the person or right. to the family. Um, so I guess two questions there is like, why, why do people sometimes lose track of what their strengths are? And then how do you bring that out? And why, why, why bring the strengths out? Um, you know, I think people lose track of what their strengths are because of their history. And I use that term really loosely. And what I mean by that is when you go through things really, really difficult, um, maybe you have a child with special needs or you were homeless or um, you went through a really bad divorce or was in a really bad car accident even or something like that. That memory of that just lives there. I have one mom in particular, she tells me, she goes, I just feel it in my body. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter to her that this thing happened um, two, three, four years ago. She just feels that in her body and she feels that struggle in her body. And with that lingering, I feel like that's where our strengths get lost. And we constantly have that memory of going back to that event or going back to that struggle and having that feeling of that coming back over and over again. We forget of what we're good at. We forget the successes that have happened since that. That's why I think it's so important, whether you're doing what we do in wraparound or you're a a mental health professional in another perspective or a social worker, is to always constantly be pulling those strengths back up. And I think historically, our systems, juvenile court, children's services, um, you know, even board of developmental disabilities, mental health, everything is deficit based. So families have been absolutely exactly what I was just going to ask. They're trained to to look at everything that's negative about their lives. We've trained to look at a behavior as a deficit. We've trained people to look at a struggle as a deficit, and we don't teach people that. I know this current behavior is driving you crazy, Mm -hmm. but look at what they're getting from that. Mm -hmm. Look at this way that this is helping them get what they need to have in their life and and the hidden strength. I'm a a big believer in every big behavior 
that makes you want to pull your hair out as a, as a helper, there's a hidden strength in that. Mm -hmm. And you have to look through it with that lens and pull that out. Yeah. Out of every single behavior that you, that we that we see, and I use that term behavior loosely because half the time I don't even really think it's behaviors. It's just it's just stuff that makes us uncomfortable, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a behavior, or yes. not even necessarily a bad thing. It's just maybe a little socially unacceptable, or mm -hmm. makes us as uncomfortable as the professionals around a person. Yes, and behavior has really become one of those deficit terms, yes, right? And exactly. that's I think what you're trying to say is that you're kind of trying to you're you're trying to present that in a way that we all can understand, but also let's not call it a behavior because right. that gets right back to the system kind of mm -hmm. defining and Absolutely. labeling a child right. who's trying to communicate. So is there something that you could say to the value then in um, partnering with families who have grown so used to a deficit way of thinking to partnering with them rather than serving for them or doing for them? Mm -hmm. And and what does that look like when, in your work? I I've been here for the evolution of that also um, from when I first came here until, you know, seven years or so, we told families what to do. Mm -hmm. Families did not buy into that at all. Engagement was not there. They would come once, they'd maybe come twice. Um, everybody would tell them what to do, all the professionals, and then they, you know, we'd never see them again. Mm -hmm. So with the way we do things now, um, you know, having family involvement, families really buy into it. They want to have the meetings. Um, it just helps them see themselves in a different light when they're an active part of it. Because who knows the family best? The family. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Absolutely. And there's something about that, that that Gretchen I think is really important that you're saying is there's a historical past that is now being learned from, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that you've been you've been in that mm -hmm. this whole time, right? Mm -hmm. And you've seen that. Right. It doesn't mean that you back then didn't care oh, or was trying to mm -hmm. you know coerce or harm families in any way. Right, right. You were doing you were doing the best you knew at the time, right? right? And so the best you know now looks Very a little different. different. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like it's it's having a bigger impact, mm -hmm. and it, that it's maybe the purpose of services is is starting to come into light. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the in it, you don't always you have to look back and see the change that has yeah. taken place. Our our new beliefs, mm -hmm. you know, how the state has been changing, how the nation has been changing. It's yeah. really a push Absolutely. across the nation, which is wonderful. Yeah. What do you mean? What's the push in the nation? Um, everything is family driven yeah. and, and youth guided and they're, yeah. they are always at the table. So they need to be there. We can't be making decisions for them without them being an active participant. And as I always say, we can have the best ideas or a team mm -hmm. can have the best ideas, but if the family says no, you move on and right, then yeah. maybe you go back and revisit it and the family's like, Oh yeah, you're right. That, that sounds like a great idea. I'm ready to try it. When you're, when you're looking at that, that contrast, and something you guys said before was like there were ridiculous approaches or strategies before, so I kind of want to tease that out. Um, can you give examples of ways that the system can use strategies that totally don't work that might seem ridiculous? And then what does it look like to do something more effective? You know, I think it's really interesting kind of going back on my background before I came to Claremont County, the county I was in before we had no money, <laughs> like none whatsoever. And so the interesting part in being in that community and being in that setting was there was such a push with we have to work with what we have. And then with that came this idea of what can be helpful that doesn't cost money, what can be helpful that's basically free. And so an example that I use all the time, but I think it's one of the best examples I can give of 
doing something completely ridiculous that was completely written off as being the most helpful thing we could have done for an individual. We were working with a teenage girl in the local high school who was um, getting ready to go to an alternative placement setting to a different school about 45 minutes away, but she was also getting hospitalized at an acute inpatient stay anywhere between two to three times a month. Um, it was very high intense all the time. She was very, very aggressive at home. She was having self-injurious behaviors. Um, nobody really knew what to do with her. And so we were having these team meetings. And one day she said to the group, she goes, you know what? I've always wanted to learn how to crochet. And everybody kind of wrote her off on it because she was, I think she was 15 at the time. And everybody's like, what 15 year old wants to, you know, know how to do that and all those different types of things. But it was really interesting because Summer was coming upon us and um, she had a sibling with severe medical conditions and her family actually had to go out of state to get them treated. And she was going to be home with an alternative caregiver for about a month. And so I remembered her saying this and we were all really nervous about her you know, staying here with this alternative caregiver. So we made a plan around her on how we were gonna support her, how we were gonna help her have things to do, that community connection piece. But also there was one person on the team who said, who remembered that and I brought back up to them and they, she, they said, you know what? I know how to crochet, I could teach her. And that could just be something that we do. And so that's what we did. We spent that summer teaching her how to crochet. She had such a successful summer with no hospitalizations whatsoever at that point in time that we worked it out with the alternative school placement setting that she was able to take her crochet stuff to school. So we worked out with the school that she would have her stuff in the corner in a, in a rocking chair. We made sure it was a it was a plastic crochet hook, nothing she could hurt anybody with, you know, and all those different types of things. And um, so when she gets stressed out at school, she'd go back in the crochet chair in the chair crochet in the corner she would do that until she felt regulated again and she'd come back to her desk mm -hmm. and because we gave her access to something that brought her joy in every setting that we could bring it to it she has moved back to her regular school setting and when I left which was about a year after we started with her had no acute hospitalizations at that point in time and she her family went through some difficult stuff in that year and she still never was aggressive never was um threatening to kill herself and all of those different things because she just found something that gave her joy and it cost the system about $10. <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it was also sustainable for that family yeah. too. I mean, that was another big piece of it. It was the family was always struggling financially. So if we were going to do something helpful, it had to be sustainable for them too, which is another difficult part of the conversation because we spend so much time in systems saying, well, let's put you in this program let's put you in this therapy and let's send you over to this over here and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, which is all great and wonderful, but it's not sustainable for families long-term when we walk away. Therefore, that's what leaves the basically the the burn like when we leave and they come back yeah. three four months later yes. because we set them up for something they can't sustain yes and so so that was a huge example for me on how help does not have to be expensive doesn't have to be complicated you just have to be creative right 
it doesn't have to be system oriented. No, it does and, not and, have and to be system. system is actually more expensive Absolutely. than the community than a than a than a crochet right. kit. Mm-hmm. Um, and families don't want to be involved with systems. They don't. So. They don't want to be involved with systems. Yeah. They don't want to go around to fifteen different point right. appointments and have three different case oh, managers yes. telling them what to do and all those different types of things. It's overwhelming. And and so you listened in that scenario. Absolutely. You listened. Somebody listened to the youth mm-hmm. who was yeah. saying what she needed yes. as opposed to telling her what to do. She that's did. what she needed. She, <laughs> she knew what she needed. And I mean, I think that's what's so amazing is that these kids and these families, if you just sit and listen, they'll tell you exactly what they need. That's actually going to be helpful for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's obviously not, um, I think the other misstep that can happen is then Let's start a crocheting program for everybody who has yeah. the same type Absolutely. of mental health issues. And that is, Katie, Katie, you are you are hitting the nail on the head. Is that what happens too? And we even struggle with that here in our shop sometimes. Is that we see success with one family and we just assume if we repeat the exact same thing, it's going to be successful for every family thereafter. And when it doesn't, turn your head saying, "What the heck happened?" Well, it's because you didn't individualize. You didn't personalize. Because the next person, even though their diagnosis may be the same, is still completely different than the last person. Every one of them is so different no matter what the diagnosis is. You have to constantly be listening and you have to constantly be thinking outside of the box in order to do things helpful because everybody's help should look different. Is that more work for you? Prescribing something seems to be like a um, yeah, choice easy. cut. Yes. And yeah. it, I mean, it is. It is It is more work. I mean, what we do takes time. It takes time to learn the families. It, ta- it takes time to get the right potential team members on board. It takes time to get buy-in from those team members. It takes time to get everybody on the same page then thinking thinking differently. I, I, I tell staff the phrase on my wall is that our job is to help people look at the family differently, which is going to help them look at the problem differently, which is going to completely change the conversation of what help is going to be for a family. But that does take time. I mean, there's there's no way to get around it. We are not a fast-moving organization. We try to be efficient in what we do. Um, but I think it's also a good thing that we're not a super fast-moving organization. This is not necessarily a super fast-moving process. Because I think one of the worst things that we can do for families is to push them out the door too quickly and, and not taking that time to really look at, are we making progress? Are we building skills that are sufficient and that are sustainable for after um, you know they leave a program? And just, yeah, all that stuff takes time. Yeah. And it's well, so much more rewarding It's so much for more everybody. rewarding. They take that first baby step yeah. and, and they see success and bring it back to the team. Mm-hmm. and. Joy is a motivator, right? So how does community become part in resilience? Because crocheting is a great skill and it's a wonderful thing to have. But you can crochet alone all you want. Absolutely. And that's not as valuable as maybe meeting other people who like to crochet. It brings a whole other level of belonging. So how how do you build that? Well, I think it's the job of myself and my staff to find ways to make that happen. Um, So a lot of it is actually me having conversations with the system partners and saying, you know, I think in the long run, if you can let your staff member do something a little bit different, it's going to save you guys time and money. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like it right now, Mm -hmm. but it will. So every time we can give a system partner the opportunity to go out and try something new, 
with a kid that is about building community, whether it's going with them to research uh, or participate in the library comic con or going with them to look into getting involved in a recreational program or maybe one day going out to the Y with them and exploring different things. Um, we try to do that, but then also within our work within the wraparound program, from the get-go when we're developing teams for families, we are already thinking about that community connection piece. So with every team that each family has, we try and strive for to have people or community organizations be a part of that team. So when we're getting to know a family, if we hear that they're really interested in yoga, there one family that we did that specifically with, they were really interested in yoga. They had gone through some really horrible traumatic stuff. They heard yoga might be really helpful for their daughter. And, you know, it was a little bit somebody knew somebody knew somebody who understood all of that and so we brought that person in as a yoga instructor as someone who has also ironically had gone through a similar experience and used yoga to help in their healing and then that person because they were a team member and out of the kindness of their heart helped that family get connected to a yoga instructor that was within their local community that can then work with the family on the yoga piece too but then also in that that family started building community within there well too with these other families who were interested in yoga and getting to learn all those different types of things so from the get-go we're trying to build that it's a lot of bringing unexpected people to the table which once again is a pushback for our assistant partners they're like whoa why in the world is this person in here on this conversation and so it's that constant push and it's that constant dance that we may within the course of time that we're working with a family we may explore six, seven, eight, nine, ten different things before yes. the individual finds something. We were able to make that community connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it's it's a call to the community as well when you're talking about this that the invitation is actually out there for people asking how can I help? Yeah, absolutely. It's what are you good at? Yeah, absolutely. It's how can you, what you good at? offer that to somebody who's looking for a connection? And it's that simple and it's if you ask the community a good chunk of the time, yeah. they're willing to help out. We have a, a youth who is I guess she informally volunteers in a coffee shop. Now you know, it just happened naturally because she was going in there and um, it worked out but you know, who would have thought that that would have would have happened? Right. You know, she just made that relationship, and the right. yeah, yeah, she really enjoys them. You know, just put it out there, and and people want to help. I I, I believe people still want to yes, help. I agree. I think what we forget is is that we may need to go with yes, we need our models. families at first. We have to model. We have to go there as a, as a support because it is scary. It's scary to try something new. It's scary to be vulnerable. Yeah, and thanks for sharing that, Rachel. That's like, I think that's a common experience that any of us can have. So what is the best advice that you've received to, to build resilience? Oh, I mean, I go back to community, helping people find their community. I think it's, I think it's the most... And I've, I've felt this way for years. I think being part of Resilience Project helped me find good wording for what I already knew in the back of my mind. Um, but helping, as one kid told us the other day in a team meeting, you helped me find my tribe. I think that is the greatest way we can build resilience in people. Um, Who was his tribe? His tribe was um, a new group of friends who accepted him for who he was. Um, and we got there through a very roundabout, curvy way. And it has completely changed 
that kid. He's a he's a completely different kid who, granted, still has struggles. I mean, I think that's the thing you have to remember. Like, none of this makes everything just disappear. But it helps teach. It helps people feel capable to manage the difficult stuff. Well, Gretchen, what about you? What's the best advice you've heard on how to build resilience? I think with this this project, it's it's the the full team getting different perspectives, whether it's the mental health professional, whether it's the children's services worker, the probation officer, the SSA, um, the parent, the, the youth. I think it's having a team around so you can toss ideas off of each other and then figure out what really could meet the needs. And as Rachel said before, you try one thing, it doesn't work, you go on to the next. So I think that's that's what I see as really successful in helping people find their resiliency. And we have a lot of different options and different ideas. So the whole system approach is actually yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you see people Going outside with is a comfort zone yep. nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yep. They're willing to stretch it and, and try new things. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes for more links and resources.